a lot of people are still out there looking for medical fame, uh, even within the, the medical community. And it's important that we understand that these, a lot of these studies can have biases. A lot of them do have biases. And what we're supposed to do is write in each of those papers exactly what biases there are. And the vast majority of researchers do exactly that and do it very, very well. Some people don't. This is episode 104 of the Neuro Experience podcast. I'm Louisa. I'm your host. And today on the line, I have Dr. Mike Herring all the way from Chicago here to talk to us about diabetes, cardiovascular health, and what diet is the best for maintaining a good heart. Let's go. My name is Mike Herring. I'm currently an internal medicine resident physician in Chicago. Did my undergrad at a place called St. Michael's College in Vermont. Uh, shout out Purple Knights. I uh, did my medical school at Rush in Chicago. Um, I've been a type 1 diabetic for 25 years. I'm a certified personal trainer. Um, I will be finishing my residency uh, in about a year from July, and I will hopefully be a cardiology fellow shortly thereafter. That's so incredible. How? What's it been like? Like, what's the journey been like? We hear about med school. We watch all these TV shows, and it just looks daunting. It looks like you guys are working, like you know, for 150 hours straight. <laughs> um, I will tell you that there is very, very little truth in any of the medical dramas. Now, I haven't seen all of them. Um, I'm going to get a hard time after this because I haven't seen one episode of Grey's Anatomy. Um, and and Chicago med often films at my hospital and I still haven't seen it. Um, and I'm only a little, I'm only a little bitter. They haven't asked me to be on it, but that's okay. No, I'm kidding. Um, so what I, what I can tell you is it's, um, you know, it's a long road. Um, and there's not one road. I think that's the most important thing to, to talk about. I took a total of four gap years off. I know people that take that, that took a lot more, I know people that took no, no time off. Um, so it's a long road. It's a difficult road. Um, but there are many roads to get there. Absolutely. I, um, what I'm loving so much, especially in the New York industry space is, um, I'm finding and connecting with a lot of doctors who are not just bringing their knowledge of medicine to social media, but they're also bringing their own zest for everything. And as you stated, um, diabetes, it's also something that I really want to get into. So without further ado, I want to ask you a few questions and I'd love your, you know, your response to them. Okay. So let's get right into it. What's been your, like, when were you diagnosed? How did you get into it? And can you tell us more about it? So I was uh, six years old when I got diagnosed with diabetes, um, type one diabetic. You know, there are a lot of, there are five different, what we call clusters of diabetes that each have their own diagnoses. Um, but for the sake of, for the sake of this, this podcast, we'll go with type one and type two. I'm type one. Um, it's an autoimmune reaction that kills essentially the cells that create insulin. And without insulin, you can't take sugar from your blood and put it into your tissues and you can't use it. So a hundred and so years ago, um, before they had discovered insulin, um, you know, these kids would get this disease and they would just slowly wither away and die over the course of a couple months. Um, but now, you know, of course we have insulin and, um, without it, I would be dead. So, <laughs> um, so you know, my, my initial, um, my initial diagnosis, I remember it like the back of my hand, I was, uh, playing a board game with my grandfather, uh, some, you know, summer morning. And, uh, I kept having to, you know, get up and go to the bathroom and asking for a glass of water and 
back to the bathroom, back to the glass of water, back to the bathroom, back to the glass of water. Uh, and my mother had been a cardiac nurse before I was born. So she had, uh, she had a pretty good idea. So she calls my pediatrician and goes, I think my kid's got diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, oh, I don't know, maybe he's just sick. And, no, he's got diabetes. Sure enough. I go down there. My blood sugar's in the seven hundreds. Um, and then I quickly learned that I have to spend the next week in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a six year old boy, you can tell I was probably thrilled about that. Yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, you know, bawling in hysterics in the car ride home. And, uh, it turned out not to be a terrible experience. Um, my father spent the night, uh, with me in the hospital and, you know, I got to stay up late and watch football and, you know, and 25 years later, here I am, um, teaching people about it. So this is, uh, yeah. this is pretty cool. You know, what we see now in the media and, and just let's look at it from a point of view where we have no knowledge on it at all, even sure. from the medical space, there's two types of diabetes. And I, you know, what we read about is there's the one that you can, you know, be born with or, um, mm. or there's, then there's the one that's caused by, you know, eating badly. So it's never as cut and dry as the media says it is. Uh, there are a lot of things that go into type two diabetes. Um, this is characterized by insulin resistance. Essentially your body still makes the insulin that you need, but for whatever reason, your tissues, you know, your fat cells, your muscle cells, what have you, they're a little bit more resistant to that, uh, to that insulin. Um, what that ends up leading to is vascular disease and kidney disease and eye disease, etc. Now there's a lot of this that has to do with obesity, with diet choices, uh, with a sedentary lifestyle. I could get into the, all the microbiology, but I'm not going to do that for this. <laughs> um, but there's also a genetic component. And, you know, type 2 diabetes also runs in families. And, uh, you know, some families have a stronger predisposition to others. And there are, there are cases where no matter how much you diet, how much you exercise, and how, uh, you know, how well you control yourself, uh, some people still will have type two diabetes. Um, that's quite the minority, but it's still a possible. Um, a lot of this has to do with insulin resistance and obesity is kind of the main way they, they get that way. So what do you think we're doing now? Like, do you think, is there a growing rise in the amount of people being diagnosed with, um, diabetes as, you know, as, uh, the years go on? Like, are we, are more people being diagnosed in 2019 than what they were 10 years ago? Um, you know, I would probably say you, yes, with an asterisk. Um, I think we are getting better and, uh, more vigilant about screening for diabetes because we understand what it can do to you down the line. Um, you know, shortly after an initial diagnosis of type two diabetes, assuming it's early in the disease process, uh, you know, you might not see something manifest until five, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. And yeah. it's, uh, it's, it, it's that part of it that makes it difficult to, you know, immediately recognize as an issue, but without, without immediate, uh, work on it, then it becomes an issue later, later on. Um, but I think it's, I think we're becoming much, much more vigilant about testing for it. So we're finding more people that actually have it, uh, who may have otherwise slipped through the cracks. Mm. It's interesting because we're becoming um, more educated. You know, now that um, we have access to free education, whereas, you know, 20 years ago we didn't have access to, you know, Instagram and, and Facebook. And I'm not saying that, you know, um, these social media platforms are providing a um, a really peer-reviewed um you know, research engine to go and type in diabetes. However, we, we, it's safe to say that now as humans, we're able to just log on to, you know, Google and type in 
diabetes and how to stop it. So we're becoming more um, aware of it. However, what I'm finding is that there's all these fad diets, you know, and that's what got me into understanding cholesterol because everyone's like, you know, I want to be healthy. I want, I don't want to get diabetes. I'm going to do, I'm going to follow the keto diet. And then you hear about people saying, well, you're going to get high cholesterol from the keto diet because it's predominantly fat. And then you, you sit back and I know people who aren't really in the medical space and who don't really understand this just want answers. And they're being bombarded by all these left, right, you know, left, right, left, right, all these points of views telling you what to eat, what not to eat. Like just the other day I, um, I watched the game changes. It's a, it's on Netflix and everyone, um, it's on, you know, it's saying how bad meat is for you and they do all the scientific studies. And then you go and watch something on Bulletproof Radio by Dave Asprey and he talks about grass fed beef being so good for you. It's like, who do we trust? So <laughs> what's your take on diets promoting? You know, I'll be honest. They all drive me up the wall. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you can find data out there that will support any point of view you put, could possibly have. And without real unbiased peer reviewed sources, it's essentially meaningless. Um, with regards to all these fad diets, really they're basing it on, you know, people want to lose weight and let's see if this doesn't work. In my experience, treating patients that have tried these fad diets, trying a lot of them myself, just so I can know what they go through. Um, Mm. they're just different ways to trick your, your, excuse me. They're just different ways that you can use to trick yourself to consume fewer calories. You know, keto diet, maybe you're, all you love is, you know, pizza, pasta, rice, cookies, cake, all that stuff. And then you switch to keto. Well, all of those are gone now, you know? So now you subsist on, you know, chicken breast, steak, avocados. Well, you're probably going to eat less of that because you're a, you're a, you're a pasta person. So you eat fewer calories or you go to paleo and all the, uh, you know, you can't have the Doritos or the, the processed foods anymore, which took, took up a big portion of your life. So those are fewer calories that, that you're no longer consuming. Um, you know, there's a, I mean, there's a thousand of these, um, the, the, frankly, the trick to this is it's just tricking you into consuming fewer calories. And that's why people say it works. Now there are some, there are some biomechanical processes at play, but for the general public and for those of us who are just, you know, trying to lose some weight every now and again, uh, it's really about the fewer calories. Um, you know, there, there are certain hormones that are, you know, upregulated, downregulated in the keto diet, uh, that may or may not be good for you. Um, the, the, the research is still, you know, kind of, it's, it's less nebulous than it was five years ago, but it's still not quite to the center of the medical community just yet. Um, you know, there's a, there's a big, been a big push in cardiology recently for the vegan diet. Um, that's interesting. I want to tap in on that because as a cardiologist yourself, you're, you're, are you promoting this? Well, I'm not, I'll be, I want to be, make, make sure I'm very, very clear. I'm not a cardiologist. Um, hopefully it's in my future, but not now. Um, but the, your liver creates all the cholesterol really you need. And some people is more, more or less than others. Um, and we get the rest of our cholesterol from our diet. Um, I would never say that now I would personally never say that everyone should be a vegan. Um, I'm not vegan. I don't plan to be vegan. 
Um, but that's for my own medical comorbidities and that's for my own, you know, wants, needs, and likes in whatever short period of time I have on this planet. That being said, I've seen the vegan diet, uh, along with appropriate medication and exercise, take people's total cholesterol levels, bring them way, 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 way down. Um, of course, if you're not consuming any dietary cholesterol, the only cholesterol you get is from your liver. And with medications, if we are preventing your liver from making a ton of cholesterol, then of course it's going to go down. So in some patients, it works beautifully. Um, in some patients, they're not going to do it. <laughs> you know, I would be the first one that's not going to do it. Um, just because I like to eat meat and, um, you know, I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, but without knowing exactly what my cholesterol is, any random cardiologist couldn't possibly judge me. Um, now that, that being said, it has worked. A lot of cardiologists are starting to push for the vegan, the, uh, vegan diet. There are some holes in the literature that they're trying to, uh, fix up. And I think a lot of the pro vegan folks will tell you, yes, you know what? There are some holes in the, in the, uh, in the research that need to be closed up, but you know, uh, if you have a practice with thousands of patients and you've been doing it for dozens of years and you see everything working, you know, you're going to be hard pressed not to go that route. So, you know, as far as lowering cholesterol, you know, limiting, limiting meat consumption. Yeah. It makes total sense. Yeah. I 100% agree. I was actually looking at some studies and I found an interesting one about reversing cardiovascular risk, um, by consuming more vitamin D. I was wondering if you can expand on that in any way because, um, like I said, vitamin D, we go, okay, great, sunlight, and we don't know too much about how to consume it in any other form or why it's actually good for reversing cardiovascular risk. So what does it mean when, when somebody says cardiovascular risk? Well, there are a couple of things that could mean. Um, the first is risk of heart attack, risk, risk of high blood pressure, something that has to do with the heart and some sort of heart disease. Um, and, but with regards to vitamin D, you know, there, there have been studies between, you know, the 1970s and the early two thousands that have been epidemiological studies that have noted that a large, um, a large number of people with heart disease, specifically coronary artery disease or, um, plaque buildup in the blood vessels in the heart. Um, when, when these plaque ruptures, you get heart attacks. Um, you know, a lot of people with coronary artery disease, are deficient in vitamin D. Um, but you know, there's, but you have to also have to look at the bigger picture. Um, almost, almost half of Americans are vitamin D deficient. Um, (laughs) you know, not, not even close to almost half of Americans have severe coronary artery disease. Um, so that's something to consider. Now a correlation between vitamin D and coronary artery disease, well, you can also think, well, Okay, let's think about the population that would be deficient in vitamin D. These are the people that don't tend to go outside a lot, people that don't get a lot of sunlight. Maybe they don't walk around outside a lot. Maybe, they're, maybe they stay indoors a lot. Maybe they lead a sedentary lifestyle. And with a sedentary lifestyle comes often poor food choices, excess calories, and then leads to obesity. So it's not very difficult to make the jump from staying inside to obesity and heart disease, um, even with the one extra step being vitamin D deficiency. So that's not terrible. That's not, that's not a terribly large jump. Now the new studies that are currently being, uh, currently being looked at are actually looking at the, uh, the effectiveness of vitamin D in, in heart disease. And those studies haven't, haven't panned out anything just yet. 
but they're still in the very preliminary phases and there's still, you know, there's still, still, still plenty of work to be done. Now there, of course, it's plausible that vitamin D could help with coronary artery disease. We don't know how, and we don't even know if. So that's something that, uh, that, that I would consider kind of holding off on. So what's your take on, um, on people consuming information? Where do we get all the right information from? (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. Um, this is, this is an interesting question. Um, I think that I never, I will never tell a patient, no, you should not do your own research. I think every patient should do his or her own research, his or her own research. Excuse me. That being said, um, with the medical training that we get, we are taught not only how to get the information, but also how to synthesize the information and be able to tell you what it means. A lot of people are still out there looking for medical fame, uh, even within the, the medical community. And it's important that we understand that these, a lot of these studies can have biases. A lot of them do have biases. And what we're supposed to do is write in each of those papers exactly what biases there are. And the vast majority of researchers do exactly that and do it very, very well. Some people don't. It's important that whatever information you do find, whether it's on the internet, whether it's from a friend, whomever and wherever, that you talk to somebody who is a professional and dealing with exactly this. And they can give you the information and they can help you synthesize the information and, you know, show you what it actually means. Um, like the vitamin D study you mentioned earlier, it's, it's, it's correlation, um, but there may, be, there may not be causation. We don't know. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, one, one example of that is, um, you know, there's a, there's a correlation between, uh, the per capita cheese consumption and the number of people who died becoming tangled in their bed sheets. Um, <laughs> so what you're sw- saying is swear they, to God. <laughs> when people actually, that's a good one. When people actually put out risks, you're looking at like a minority. It's like saying, you know, I know that there's a big, you know, cancer scare risk. Everyone's, you know, don't eat burnt toast because it's got car- it contains carcinogens and you're going to get mm-hmm. cancer. Like we're looking still at the minority, but we're not really talking about the people who are living, you know, to 100 and 120. So what you're saying is don't go in absolutes. Don't look at one article and believe that that's it and that's how you should live your life. Exactly. And I'll tell you, the, I'm a big proponent of individualistic medicine. You know, I, not two people are the same and we have, we have lots of guidelines, but they are just exactly that. They are guidelines. They have to guide our thinking. And these are, you know, these are tens of thousands of, uh, of, of hours put in by God knows how many physicians and, and slaving over who knows how many thousands of, of, of patient, uh, information and studies and this, that, and the other thing. There's so much information out there that the, the people who write these guidelines have to condense into something manageable for just the rest of the physicians out there for us to then tell the patients exactly what it is they, they probably ought to do. Now, those are great. And I would, wouldn't in a, in a very, very long time say somebody ignore the guidelines. Um, but the guidelines only go so far. And I think it's, medicine is really supposed to be individualized. Um, for example, I'm not going to tell a muscular patient of mine that their kidney numbers are too high and they should stop lifting weights because that's kind of how it goes with people who exercise a lot. Their kidney numbers are higher, a little bit higher than normal, just as an example. Um, so that's, that, you know, one example of kind of individualizing the medicine. Mm. Um, you know, and you know, there's, there's, I can, you know, there's dozens of examples like this, but 
Um, you know, not one thing should be any, any, not any one thing should be taken as an absolute. It should be taken always with a grain of salt. First and foremost, Mm -hmm. it should be taken with how can I apply this to my life to make, maybe make myself a little bit healthier in the long run. And Oh, by the way, I still have questions. Maybe I should ask my doctor what this means. Yeah. Or a specific doctor, not, you know, uh, there's like, what I find is we, I, I work in the, I work with a neurologist and what we see a lot of times is people going to just their standard family medicine doctor. And it's like, they're asking their family, family medicine doctor, like, you know, really cutthroat questions about cardiology or, um, neurology. it's like, why don't you go and find a specialist within that area to actually delve deeper into any issue that you're having? Yeah. And, you know, I think family, family medicine doctors are great for, you know, God knows how many reasons, just all of them really. (laughs) Um, but they're also, they're also, you know, general practitioners and they haven't had the specified training that a specialist will have. Now they've practiced for, for, they've done so much practice that they'll be able to tell each patient very accurately the, uh, whatever, whatever, whatever questions they, they have, the patients have, the family practitioner will be able to answer them very accurately. Uh, what's great about family medicine physicians is they will always refer to a specialist if they need help. Uh, that, you know, that's the beautiful thing about, you know, general, general internal medicine and family medicine. If they need help, we will find the help. Um, we, we weren't going to, we're not going to make any, any claims that we don't feel a hundred percent about. Yeah. I hear that often. And and I absolutely love that. I would love to like move away from the medical talk and actually talk about you because you're doing some awesome things and you're inspiring a lot of people. And, um, I've been following you on Instagram and I love the stories you put out there. You're very active, um, always in your scrubs. And I was actually telling, um, I was actually telling you before you came on the episode that I found you because we're both, we're, obviously we both wear scrubs and we both wear big scrubs. And I saw you're part of that community. So how did that happen? You know, um, I, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, I, I wore their scrubs in a couple of my posts and, you know, I, my, my Instagram was initially to, to show people that you can be diabetic and you can be in the healthcare industry and you can be, you know, overworked and overtired and you can still be a healthy human being. Um, and, and it's just blossomed into this wonderful relationship. Now I work with, with figs. They're a lovely scrub company and they make, you know, they make the best stuff in the world, but they're also made of the best people that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. Um, and you know, that's, that's like, that's just, you know, that's from my heart and that's not from any sort of like sponsorship deal or any crap like that. So, you know, they're, they're all wonderful human beings out there. Um, you know, they, they saw me post a couple pictures and they asked me, Hey, you want to be a part of our team? I was like, absolutely. You know, where do I sign? Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun. It's, you know, I can reach so many more people through social media than I can just in a day of clinic or, you know, rounding in the hospital. And, um, you know, I'm a big proponent of, you know, you have to, you have to treat yourself before you actually get sick. So you don't actually get sick because by the time you get sick, you know, your, your options are a little bit more limited. Um, and I can do that. I can do that way better on Instagram than I can in my, in my clinic. So. I think the same way. I, I am a firm believer in the preventative model rather than go and do all the damage and then go and see a specialist. So I'm always about, you know, what are you doing every single day to take care of your brain? What are you, what are you having? What are you fighting? What are you eating? What are you, how much are you sleeping? How much are you drinking? Like 
are you vaping? Like let's look at like minimizing that before, you know, you go and bash yourself and then go and have to, you know, rack up a, a whole list of medical bills. So I love that. Um, so last but not least, I would love to know what do you do to stay like fit cardiovascularly? You know, I, uh, I do a little bit of everything. Um, I have been a hockey player since I was, you know, since before I was old enough to remember that I was a hockey player. Um, I still play, I'm in my thirties now. I still play a couple times a week. Um, I still play soccer a couple times a week. I go to the gym just every single day that I possibly can. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's so much benefit to, every kind of physical activity. Um, you know, my father told me, uh, God knows how many years ago that the best exercise is the one that you'll actually do. So when somebody says, when somebody sees me, it's like, Oh yeah, you know, he, he lifts a lot of weight. So maybe I need to do that. And it turns out they don't like doing it. Well, do something else. doesn't bother me. You know, I, I don't have to have all of my, all of my patients and all of my friends be, you know, big giant meatheads like I am. Um, I'm happy with whatever somebody else wants to do as long as they're breathing hard and working a sweat and struggling a little bit, you know, that's, that's what makes, that's what makes me happy when I see that everywhere. Um, so, you know, for me, it's, it's sports and, and lifting weights, uh, for somebody else, it might be Pilates for somebody else. It might be, you know, doing a, a hit workout class or for somebody else, it may be marathon running and somebody else might be swimming. I mean, there's, there's so many things that you can do that all that they all have benefit. Um, so I think we're, we're in the phase where we're overcomplicating everything. Everybody needs to go to like a soul cycle class and that's the only thing they can do because it's the only thing that's good for you. No, you know, going outside and walking for half an hour and walking like somebody's chasing you is, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's fine too. And I ask everybody this at the end of a podcast, what's the one thing that, um, people could do to like the one piece of advice you can give so somebody can increase their human performance? They're human. Ooh. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good question. One thing. Gosh. Mm, I have to think about this one. (laughs) I would say, I would say move when you don't want to. Um, Mm. I, I think we gain so much from the struggles that we get from physical activity, not just physically, but also mentally. It trains us to push through barriers that we thought we had. Um, you know, your, your mind is a lot stronger than your body. Um, if your, if your mind thinks you are too weak to lift something, you are too weak to lift something. If you take your mind out of it, you may not be too weak to lift something. If your mind thinks you are too slow, you are too slow. If your mind if you ignore your mind when it comes to running, you will be faster. Easier said than done, right? Way easier said than done. hundred yeah, yeah. percent. Um, you know, that's why, you know, coming from a hockey background, I remember the best games I ever played was when I didn't think at all. And I never, I didn't remember the game. I just remembered playing well and that's all. Um, but this is something, but moving when you don't want to is a way to train yourself that, you know, maybe that barrier is a little bit farther back than I initially thought. Um, so I would say whenever it is, you don't want to, um, and I would argue, especially when you don't want to go do it anyway and make yourself a little bit better today. I love that. Mike, where can we find out more? Uh, where can we find more about you? Um, so my Instagram handle is at doctor or dr, excuse me, uh, dot Mike underscore MD. If you search for Mike Herring, um, 
I should pop up. Um, I have a YouTube channel, Dr. Mike Herring. It's still young, so forgive me. Um, and if you search my name on Google, you should probably be able to find my blog. Um, I just started a TikTok account with the same handle. Um, you know, I'm, I'm slowly cropping up everywhere. If you search my name, I'm sure you'll find me. I love that. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. This has been awesome.